Ever since early New Testament times, followers of Jesus have been under constant attack and have often found themselves under harsh persecution. To decide to give one's life to Jesus was to become in many instances and places a fugitive and in constant danger of violence to one's self, one's family, the, the brethren or the church, and often the result was that of imprisonment and death. So the choice of being Christian was and still is never to be taken lightly. Counting the cost always has very real implications for every potential believer, but it takes on a totally deeper sense and meaning when it comes to living in a particular country that are violent towards believers in Jesus Christ. Today, for example, such violence still and persecution still remains and it's practiced against Christians. A, a simple search online will, will give you a list of places that violence is often the norm against believers of Jesus Christ. Places, for example, like North Korea, not to make anybody uncomfortable, but places like Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, and even Pakistan, to name just a few, are recorded as some of the most dangerous places for a Christian to find themselves living. Believers are often hunted down. Believers are often imprisoned. Believers are often tortured, and the result ultimately finds its way to them being killed for their religious beliefs. These harsh conditions and continues to do so as a deterrent to potential believers as fear becomes rampant in the heart of the innocent. However, by way of proof of Jesus' emphatic words to Peter and the rest of the disciples in the book of Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 18, that even the very gates of hell or Hades shall not prevail against the church, there are people that still come to Christ more and more every year in these very hostile conditions and places. Countless testimonies have been recorded of people coming to Jesus having read the Bible or part thereof for themselves in secret or corresponding with someone and as is often the case, Christians risking their lives to still go into these hostile environments and preach and teach the gospel to individuals. In the book of Mark, uh, Matthew, chapter number 10 and verse number 16, Jesus, as he's preparing his disciples to go out into the world, he would declare unto them, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye there wise as serpents, and yet harmless or humble as doves. Though the danger is real, Jesus knew beforehand and prepared his disciples 
accordingly. He wanted them to know that following him brought with it some very real and impending danger, and that if they were to become his disciples, that they were called to go into these very hostile environments. Before leaving the earth, Jesus would have commissioned them to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation. So even though they were going to be these various places and spaces uh, that were violent and, and that would uh, present persecution to the church, Jesus still commanded them, and yet he still commands us to go. He says, knowing that there is a present physical danger, he tells them and he commands them to go into poor communities. By extension, he commands us to go into poor communities. He commanded them to go into high crime areas. And by extension, he commands of us as the church to go into high crime areas. He commanded them to go into hostile environments and to speak before hostile crowds and peoples. And by extension, he commands us to go into these hostile environments to take the one thing that could make all the difference in the world, and that is the gospel. But with regard to my message this morning, while it is clear that there are places that provide a very present danger, geographically speaking, for the people of God, God and his Son, through the Holy Spirit, also says to us and commands of us that we need to go. In the book of John chapter 17, I want to beg your attention there really quickly. I'm, I'm doing all of this in the lead up to our text. In the book of John chapter 17, where we find Jesus, he is praying over his disciples. He, he knows he is going to leave them very soon. And, and so he is praying. He is, he is taking the opportunity to lift them up in prayer. And in this particular prayer, he, he utters some of these statements. If you are in John, the gospel of John chapter 17, make your way down to verse number 9. And in verse number 9, he would make his way into his prayer and he would say, I pray for them I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Lest you think that, that Jesus doesn't have an, a mind or an eye or a heart for the world, that's really not the case. But he is specific here in praying for his disciples. He is specific here in praying for his apostles. He is specific here in praying for his followers as they are preparing to go into the world. As you make your way down to verse number 11, he says, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. So Jesus is praying for these disciples as he's preparing to send them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. But part of his prayer is not just for protection, but part of his prayer is for unity. He wants them to be safe, but he wants them to be united. He wants them to be protected, but he wants them to be connected. He wants them, you guys with me, he wants them to be safe. So he prays for their safety. But with the same intensity, he prays for their safety. He prays for their connectivity. So the people of God ought to not 
just be pondering on safety. The people of God ought to be pondering on unity as well. Make your way down if you are so inclined now to verse number 15 of the Gospel of John chapter 17. I do not pray, however, that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. I know the world is harsh, God. I know the world presents a very present and real danger for these sheep, for these lambs, for, for these followers of me. But I don't want you to remove them. I just want you to guard their hearts and guard their minds and keep them from the devil. And there's a reason why Jesus says don't take them out. So, so his desire is not to avoid these geographical, geographically dangerous places, nor is his desire to be totally removed or have them totally removed from these spaces as is evident in his statement, do not take them out. However, he recognizes that they could only be beneficial as light to the world if they are there to shine. They can only be beneficial as salt of the earth if the salt is contained in it. So in other words, as much as this world presents at times a hostile environment, as much as this world presents a very present, real, and impending danger for the child, the man, and the woman of, Je of God, of Jesus Christ, he says, you and I have a part to play in helping a dark world become that much more illuminated. So he is praying for their protection, but he also prays for their unity. And he tells God in no uncertain way, don't remove them. Leave them there. But keep their hearts, keep their minds from the wicked one. And so Jesus understood that the danger that really presents itself to the child of God is not necessarily those geographical places that threaten to take our lives physically from us. But he understands that there is, in fact, a place that, that is far more dangerous and poses far more of a threat to the Christian existence that you and I should ultimately avoid. So from our text this morning, taken from the book of Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. I've entitled my brief exhortation on this morning, A Dangerous Place for a Christian to Be. A Dangerous Place for the Christian to Be. Follow me with this and I'll be done. In the background of this text, I want us to consider two bits and pieces of information as it pertains to the backdrop. If you think, and for those who have studied the book of Luke, Luke is a book that's riddled with several themes. Luke develops several themes throughout his epistle and throughout his 
writing. One of the main themes that, that Luke would develop, and uh, he would do this from the very beginning uh, of chapter 1, and he would continue to do that even until the end of, of his particular gospel account. He would develop this idea of what is commonly referred to in a religious sense of divine reversal. Those who think themselves to be insiders would in turn now become outsiders, and those who were forced on the outside, Jesus uh, would constantly speak and, uh, and showcase those individuals as being those who would be embraced. And so time and time again throughout the book of Luke, you would see Jesus having these encounters with these scribes and these Pharisees, these religious individuals. And oftentimes, there, there is enough evidence to prove that, 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 that Jesus was teaching in such a way to help these individuals who were supposed to be in a relationship with God recognize that really they were not in a relationship or the relationship that, that they thought they were in. And so oftentimes, the people that they had pushed out, oftentimes the people that they had put on the margin, oftentimes the people who they have put out of the temple are oftentimes the people who have, they, they have discriminated against. By Jesus' life and teaching, Luke shows that these would be the individuals who God would embrace, while at the same time, the scribes and the Pharisees would be the ones that God would reject. So our text finds itself under the category of what is commonly referred to, number one, as divine reversal. But number two, more specific to the context of the passages around and, and the passages that fit along with our current text, we, we find our text dripped within the topic of prayer that is being discussed and, and spoken of by Jesus Christ himself. In Luke chapter 18 verses 1 through 8, let me just be diligent with this. In Luke chapter 18 verses 1 through 8, he is speaking about prayer, but he talks about result of prayer being justice. So he is, he is speaking to a group of individuals and he is encouraging them to, 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 to not waver in prayer and not grow weary in prayer, but when they pray, understand that there is a hope. So he talks about the result of a persistent prayer being justice. Say justice. But then secondly, where our text is from, he continues as, to, as he's speaking on prayer, to talk about the result of prayer, which leads to justification. Say justification. So in the first text, we learn of the uh, persistence in prayer. And in our second text, where, in, in the second passage where our text is, we see the posture of prayer. So we see the persistence and the result of the persistence in prayer in the first parable, but now in the second parable where our text is taken, we see that there is a particular posture that the believer or the prayer ought to have. So the value and meaning of the first parable is only enhanced by the details of the second. In other words, whereas we learn from the first parable that the believer ought to be persistent in sincere, devout, faithful prayer. We learn from the text that we are in and we are dealing with that those persistent prayers ought to come with a particular heart. So it's one thing to be engrossed 
in prayer. It's one thing to be faithful in prayer. It's one thing to be devout in prayer. It's another thing entirely to do so with the right heart and with the right attitude. You guys with me? So here is, for all intents and purposes, the place that Jesus says that we as Christians ought to stay away from. It's a place, according to our text, of self-righteousness. Here, the believer develops the following. I want to take my time and do this. Number one, a highly unhealthy view of oneself. The person who sits and positions his or herself in a place of self-righteousness develops a bloated sense, an unhealthy sense of self. But not only do, does that person develop a highly unhealthy view of oneself, but secondarily, an extremely unhealthy view of others. We're talking about being in a place of self-righteousness. You might see this as being something that's broad, but let me tell you, it's, it's so subtle. And if we as Christians aren't mindful of it, we could find ourselves in a place and a position where we're not really where we think we are. Jesus, as he is speaking this parable, he is mindful that while these Jews, while these scribes, while these Pharisees were devout in their praying, they simply did not have the heart that they were supposed to. It is here, in this place of self-righteousness, that we find ourselves becoming judgmental and condemning. It is here that we lose our sense of total dependency and dependence, rather, on God. It is here that pride sets in and things like humility become a mask for hypocrisy. It is here that we forget that what it took for God uh, to get us to where we are. It's, it's here that we, forgot, we forget where we came from. It is here that things like grace and mercy become limited and we become selective in when and where we share it. You guys with me? It is here division is not only birthed, but it is cultivated along lines, some as these national lines and cultural Lines and socioeconomic lines and political lines, and check this even religious lines. This is a dangerous place for the Christian to be. It is here that some once budding friendships deteriorate and become a shell of what it once was. Right here in this place of self-righteousness. It is here that we think we 
have the right to approach God and forget that it is, in fact, a privilege to do so. It is here that our prayers stop being about praise and adoration to God and start becoming a sort of relationship resume. I do this and I have done that. Our prayers stop being praise to God. It stops being about what you have done and who you are and we start to dictate our resume as to what we have done these past few years for you, God. It's a dangerous place for the child of God to be. It's here that we no longer find ourselves moved with and in compassion for others. It is here that we either minimize or even fail to see our own sins while we magnify the sins of others. It's amazing that when Jesus would have spoken on the Sermon on the Mount, he, he speaks to those individuals who are so easy to point out the speck that's in somebody else's eye, but they fail to realize that there is a plank and there is a beam in their own eye. So he says, you first take the beam out of your eye. And then maybe perhaps you will have the sight and the vision necessary to, uh, and even the capacity to, to help somebody remove the speck that's in theirs. But again, he is speaking to these individuals who are living in a place of self-righteousness. And so they have either minimized or they have stopped seeing their own sins. While apparently it's glaringly clear to see the sins of other individuals. That's a dangerous place for the child of God to be. So the danger we find in the text is this. We can be performing spiritual acts. I.e., for example, in our text, prayer. And not be spirit-led or spirit-filled. We could be in the right place physically, i.e., for example, in our text, the temple. And yet still not find ourselves in the right place spiritually. I'll go one step further. See if this makes you uncomfortable. We can be in the right religion. And though we are in the right religion, we find ourselves not in the right relationship. So in our text, Jesus warns us from being in places like these. The danger in this for the believer is that we could believe we are justified when in fact... We are not. So Jesus would say our righteousness ought to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. He says that in Matthew 5 and verse number 20. The apostle Paul will say by way of one of his letters to the brethren at Corinth that 
We need to examine ourselves constantly to ensure that you and I are in fact in the faith. Second Corinthians 13 and verse number 5. He, he didn't say examine everybody else. <laughs> he said we need to examine ourselves. So Jesus understands that this is a really dangerous place for the child of God to be in. So as I conclude, lest I leave us on a low note, in as much as he identifies that there is a very dangerous place for the child of God to be in, by virtue of his parable, he also identifies a place that the child of God should find refuge. Notice in our text, he identifies two individuals. He identifies a Pharisee, but then he identifies a publican or a tax collector. I don't have time to deal with the full implications of that context because you, you guys know me on time, but, but, but the implication is you, you have two individuals who were Jews themselves. But one of them is he, he finds himself in a job that is commonly despised by people of his nation. To be a tax collector, you, you automatically became despised and hated by your people. So you have a Pharisee and you have a publican. You have a Pharisee and you have a tax collector both in the same place at the same time doing the exact same thing, pray. And yet still, in, on one hand, we have the Pharisee that represents the person and the place and the disposition that you and I as Christians ought not to have occupying a place of self-righteousness. God, I'm so grateful. I'm so glad that I'm not like other men are. I'm not a fornicator. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like that worthless, no good tax collector over there. In other words, I, I am good because I am not like everybody else. That's a person who will fail to realize that, that he or she has sin in their life just as much as the person over there has sin in their life. So he identifies a person, he identifies a mentality, he identifies a heart, he identifies a place, he identifies a mentality that he says is dangerous for the child of God to have. If it wasn't the fact that he was looking at, at the fact he wasn't doing what somebody else was doing, he is now taking taken, uh, solace in the things that he has done. I pray and, and I tithe and I do this and I do that. There's a whole lot of eyes up inside there. You didn't realize that the reason you have money to tithe with and possessions to tithe with to begin with was because I, the I am, gave it to you. You didn't realize that the reason why you could come to pray and to worship all the number of times that you come to pray and to worship is because the great I am has given you life. So no, it's not about I, 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 I. It's about I, 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 I. So in as much as he talks about this person that represents this mentality and this place that is dangerous, he says, and here's where I want to end, he says, however, there is a place that the child of God should always find themselves in. Check this. I'm done. Check this. Stand with me. Check this. He says on the flip side, verse number 13 now, the tax collector, as he, as he stood there, could you just imagine in your mind the difference in the posture between the Pharisee and the publican? One is just filled with pride. 
He has beaten his chest for the wrong reason. I did this. I did this. I did this. I did this. Look at, look at me. Look at how I dressed. I smell good. I did that. I am this. He has beaten his chest, but for the wrong reason. It's like King Kong after he, 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 he conquers Godzilla, if he could ever do it. Beats his chest. But look at the difference. You guys seeing it? Look at the difference in the tax collector. Look at the place that Jesus says we ought to be in every single time. He says the tax collector didn't so much as look up. Here is me interjecting something in this text that isn't there, but it could be. It's not that he couldn't lift his head up. He could have done that. Some people, there are postures in, 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 in the Old Testament where people would, would lift their hands and lift their eyes up to the sky and they would pray. So it's not that he could not physically lift himself up and lift his head up, but chances are the contrast that we are seeing here is that he couldn't even bring himself to look up to the heavens. He's not going to see God's face if he looks up. He, he's not going to see what kind of, what, what color is God's eye. He's not going to see any of that. It's not something physical, but he understands that, that in, in, in the grand scheme of things, he is nothing in the sight of God. So he stands there. He, 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 he humiliates himself. He, he humbles himself. He, he puts himself in a state of being debased and he can't even bring himself to look up and he beats his chest. But he's beating his chest for a different reason. He's saying, God, I know I'm not good enough. But you bless me anyway. I know I'm a sinner. But your goodness is towards me. I know I don't deserve to be here. I'm in the temple right now. Some people are on the outside. They don't have an arm. They don't have a leg. They have some type of infirmity that would, that would have... Uh, 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 that would have eliminated their chance from being in the space I'm in right now to even commune with you in prayer. But I am here. I don't deserve it. But he says, be merciful to me. Say, be merciful. He says, be merciful to me. I don't deserve to be a preacher. I don't deserve to be an elder. I don't deserve to be a worship leader. I don't even deserve to be here right now offering this prayer to you. If you only knew what I did last night. Of course he knows, but you get my drift. If you only knew who were talking to you right now. It says he beats his chest. Be merciful unto me. Say be merciful. Beat your chest. Say be merciful unto me. Beat your chest. We don't deserve to be here, but he, he blesses us anyway. We don't deserve to have what we have, but he gives us anyway. Some of us are married to some people who are more than a blessing to us. You know who I'm talking about? Our wives, our husbands, 
Some of us have kids, and some people have been struggling to have kids for all their life. They can't have kids. Some of us have homes and have cars, and every single day we pass people on the street who, whether by choice or because of life circumstances, they don't have a home to go to. But you and I, when we come to this place of prayer, when we come to this holy place, let's not be in a place of self-righteousness. Let's not beat our chest and say, look at us. But let's be the type of people who say, be merciful unto me. Be merciful unto me. Be merciful unto me, a sinner. So Jesus would conclude, as I'm done, Joe David, you make your way up. Jesus would conclude, the best place for the Christian to be is always in a place of humility. One last time, repeat after me. God, be merciful to me, a sinner.